Blood, Sweat, and Fear is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus. The series is based on her best-selling books, Blood, Sweat, and Fear, Cold Case Vancouver, and Murder by Milkshake, an astonishing true story of adultery, arsenic, and a charismatic killer. I'm Eve Lazarus, and you're listening to Blood, Sweat, and Fear. It's the story of Inspector John Vance, Vancouver's first forensic investigator. Like many Canadian families, World War II didn't leave the Vance family unscathed. They lost their son Tom on Christmas Eve 1943. 30-year-old Major Thomas Cullen Brown Vance of the Seaforth Highlanders of Canada was killed in action in Italy. He left behind a wife and baby daughter, as well as his grieving parents, older brother and two younger sisters. On May 7, 1945, Canadians celebrated the end of the war, the end of more than five years of fighting and the death of more than 45,000 Canadian soldiers. In Vancouver, people celebrated along Granville Street. In 1945, the population of Vancouver was just shy of 317,000. The city's west end, now dense with high-rises, was filled with single-family houses and the tallest building was the eight-storey Sylvia Court Hotel. On the surface, life seemed simple and straight-laced, especially on Sundays when the city shut down because the Lord's Day Act prohibited business transactions on the Sabbath. That meant no movies, no sports events and most certainly no booze. Alcohol was rationed during the war and difficult to buy legally anyway. Nightclubs like the Commodore Ballroom or the Cave weren't licensed, and if you wanted a hard drink, you smuggled in a bottle, put it under the table, paid exorbitant prices for a mixer, and hoped that the police didn't raid the joint and confiscate your booze. If you wanted a beer, you went to a beer parlour. Women through one entrance, men through another, but never on a Sunday. On December 27, 1944, Jenny Conroy, a 24-year-old war worker from North Vancouver, was found with her head smashed in by a claw hammer. Her body had been dumped at the Capilano View Cemetery in West Vancouver. Inspector Vance was called in by the West Vancouver Police to investigate this grisly crime. And just five days before Armitage, 23-year-old Olga Horaluk had been beaten to death and her body dumped in the waters at English Bay. Coincidentally, Olga, like Jenny, had worked at the North Vancouver shipyards during the war. It's possible they either knew each other. Olga Horoluk was born in Poland, grew up in the Peace River country at Harmon Valley, Alberta, and moved to Vancouver in 1941. At the time of her murder, she was renting a room on Nelson Street in the West End 
and working as a cashier at both the Empire Cafe on West Hastings Street and at the Good Eats Cafe on Granville. Olga was an attractive young woman and her co-workers described her as a quiet girl who didn't go to parties and didn't drink. On May 2nd, 1945, Olga finished her shift at the Empire Cafe at 2.30 in the morning and left with her co-worker Dorothy Fornwald. The women walked up Granville Street and Dorothy went into Malcolm's Cafe. Olga told her that she was going straight home, but then she noticed a man who was following her. She stopped in at the Good Eats Cafe to try and get rid of him. May Chalmers was working that night. She remembered that Olga came in around 3am and took a seat on a counter stool near the front door. May noticed that she'd been followed in by a tall civilian dressed in a grey coat and hat. He had very blue eyes and he'd been drinking. Olga clearly didn't know him and she heard Olga tell him to go away. May asked the man if he wanted something to eat and when he said no, she told him to get out of the cafe. He left but waited around the front door. Olga took a seat at the counter near the cash and ordered a cup of coffee from May. She chatted to the staff for a few minutes and then started talking to a soldier who was sitting on the stool next to her. The conversation seemed quite friendly. Rose, the cashier on duty at the Good Eats Cafe that night, said that she heard the soldier ask Olga out and Olga refused to go. When he tried to pay for Olga's coffee, Rose told him that Olga would take care of her own bill. Rose says she thought they were going to leave together and she suggested that Olga have another cup of coffee. Olga said she didn't want more coffee, but she went to check the timesheets to see when her shift started the next day. Lila Rogers was also working that night and was chatting to Olga in the kitchen when she went to look at a timesheet. Olga told Lila that she'd been followed by a civilian up Granville Street and came into the cafe to get rid of him. Olga told Lila that after she got rid of the civilian, she was chatted up by a soldier who sat next to her at the counter. Rose said she asked Olga to wait in the cafe for a little while before heading home. But Olga told her that she would be fine and she left. Rose said that while Olga was bothered by the civilian who had followed her into the cafe, she seemed comfortable with the soldier. He'd been drinking, said Rose, but was in a happy mood and she had the impression that Olga may have known him. It was highly possible that Olga and the soldier knew each other. William Hannon was staying at the Astoria Hotel on West Hastings and had quite likely eaten at the Empire Cafe where Olga worked, which was just across the street. The next day, the front page headlines detailed the murder of Olga Horlach, and Inspector Vance was once again part of the story. In the early hours of Wednesday, May 2nd, the residents and guests of the English Bay Mansions on Bidwell Street woke up to the sounds of a woman screaming. Alice Wilson remembered hearing nine screams at exactly 4.48am and a hammering which she described as sounding like somebody chopping wood. The noise of the blows continued even after the screams had died out. 19-year-old Richard O'Hara heard the screams and went to his window. He thought it sounded like someone hitting wet clothes against a log. Georgina Robinson and her daughter Hazel were on holidays from Calgary, where Hazel was a writer. They were staying at the English Bay Mansions when they were woken by a woman screaming, Help me! Help me! God, help me! 
The two women threw on some clothes and grabbed a flashlight. Hazel went into the kitchen to phone the police. Georgina Robinson had a heart condition and Hazel told her to take her time following her down to the beach. Hazel dashed through Alexandra Park, past the monument to Joe Fortes and ran down to the beach. I had only been to English Bay Beach once before and I didn't know my way down there very well. I had a flashlight with me and as I ran down the steps, I shined it on the edge of the water and I could make out a man's head and shoulders. And just as I saw him, Mother came to the top of the beach and called, Hazel, do you see? And I said, yes, I see him. Hazel saw that the man was wearing battle dress. Her first thought was that he'd come down to the beach to investigate the screams. Mother called to him and asked if he had heard a woman crying, God help me. He didn't answer and she called him again. I can't say how many times, it must have been two or three, and he finally answered no. The fearless Hazel ran after the soldier and shone her flashlight in his face. He turned away from her and walked quickly down Beach Avenue. We suddenly realised that he had something to do with whatever the scream was about. Mother said to me, follow him and try to get a good look at him. And I ran after him along the beach through the sand. I couldn't catch up to him and I realised I wouldn't know what to do even if I did catch up. Hazel waved down a car driven by Russell Lutz. He told her that he'd seen the soldier cross in front of his car near Denman Street, heading in the direction of the Broad Street Bridge. Lutz drove off to notify police. When Hazel returned to the beach, she and her mother followed a trail of blood on the sand where the body had apparently been dragged down to the water. They could see a woman's body was lying face down in the water about two feet from shore. I ran up and waded into the water. It wasn't very deep. I caught hold of the shoulder and pulled the head and shoulders out of the water. Just then, I saw mother and a man and I screamed at them to come and help me. They came down and pulled the body the rest of the way out of the water. And then the police arrived. Her face was horribly bruised, her forehead was bashed in, and she had no pulse. Hazel noted the woman was wearing a black fur coat, a tanned-coloured suit, gloves, a beret and pumps. Detectives George Pynchon and Neil MacDonald arrived at the crime scene to find several people already gathered there. Tom Slattery, who lived nearby, had arrived in time to help Hazel pull the body out of the water. As Tom looked around, he found two four-foot pieces of blood-stained cedar driftwood lying in the sand at the water's edge. Hazel showed police the direction where the soldier had gone and gave a description of him. He was about five foot eight, and because he wasn't wearing a hat, she could see he had dark, wavy hair. Detective Pynchon went back to his car radio and called in the information. The detectives took charge of the pieces of driftwood and searched the beach for more evidence. They found a packet of Demoria cigarettes, a small bottle of perfume, two crumpled pieces of Kleenex stained with crimson lipstick, a lipstick case, and a soldier's cap with a regimental number, k 79 053, and a bunch of keys that were later identified as Olga's. Police also found a sealed envelope with the Empire Cafe stamp. Inside was a wallet with the name Hugh A. Redpath of the Belmont Hotel. Redpath immediately became a person of interest. Less than an hour after the body was found, Sergeant Dave Shearer and Constable Oliver Leddingham saw a soldier walking down Drake Street near Granville. Leddingham asked him to take his right hand out of his pocket. 
he saw that the soldier's hand had several cuts. A nail on his index finger was broken and it was covered with blood. The officers noted several red spots on his tunic and his right pant leg. There was sand clinging to his wet boots and trouser cuffs. He wasn't wearing a hat. As Lettingham questioned the soldier, he could see that he'd been drinking. He reeked of booze and his hands were filthy, black almost. The officer had to ask the soldier his name and number a couple of times and he asked him if he had been on a party. The soldier admitted that he had and said that he was returning to his room at the Astoria Hotel on West Hastings Street. The soldier was taken to the police station and when given his warning and told that he might be charged with murder, he said, You're kidding me. I don't know what to say. I don't know the girl or very much about her. The following day, 29-year-old William Hainan appeared at police court and was charged with murder. He was in the prisoner box less than two minutes. The province newspaper described him as unmoved and expressionless. Hannon was a stocky five feet eight and former hard rock miner. When Inspector Vance arrived to examine him five hours after his arrest, the soldier still reeked of liquor. Vance took samples of charcoal and sand from Hannon's hair and hands. He took Hannon's tunic, trousers, shirt, black tie and damp black socks and shoes for analysis, as well as a cap and the two pieces of driftwood found on the beach. He extracted two ounces of sand from Hannon's left shoe and found it matched the sand found on the beach and on the cap that had been picked up by detectives. Hannon's right trouser leg had similar sand stuck to it and was stained with blood. Vance found that it was Group A, the same blood type as Olga's, which belonged to 40% of the population. The blood on the driftwood was also Group A. Because the driftwood had been handled by multiple people and was wet, there were no usable fingerprints to be found. Inspector Vance analysed the murdered woman's stomach contents, blood and urine and found no trace of either alcohol or drugs. A swab from her vaginal canal showed no evidence of sexual assault. Vance examined Olga's battered head and found her hair matted with blood, sand and wood charcoal. The charcoal was the same as he found on the bloodstained pieces of driftwood and on Hainan's hands and in his hair. Olga's black leather purse was found behind the crystal pool at Nicola Street, three blocks from the murder scene. The purse was wet and lying open on the beach with items bearing Olga's name and current address but missing money and her wallet. Hugh Redpath, the name on the wallet found on the beach, was picked up and held as a material witness. They knew that Olga had told a co-worker about finding Hugh Redpath's wallet at the cafe and intending to return it to him, but they suspected that he may have been the civilian that followed Olga to the cafe. Redpath, a radio operator, was released on a $500 bond and told to attend the coroner's inquest. He wasn't identified by any of the service on shift that night, and the mystery stranger was never found. In a lineup a few days after Olga's murder, May, Rose, and Lila all identified William Hainan as a soldier they'd seen talking to her and leaving the cafe around the same time shortly before her murder. On May 1st, 1945, 
William Hainan got up around noon, still hung over from a party held in his room until four that morning. He washed some toast down with half a mickey of rye, then he went to a beer parlour near his hotel and drank several beers. Later, he met up with his sister Kathleen and her friends at another downtown tavern, where he drank more beer. The group took a cab to a cafe at Boundary and Hastings Street, picking up two bottles of rye along the way. After dinner, they went to a supper club on East Hastings, where they drank some more and danced. William left around 1.30am. He took his unfinished bottle of rye and went to the Good Eats Cafe on Granville Street. Not surprising, William had little memory of that night. At his trial in June, he said, There was a girl sitting with a civilian. I offered them a drink. I thought they had one. My next recollection was going down an Allier Street. I must have had a bottle with me. After that, we must have been going over a grassy boulevard. Then the fight started. The next thing I fell on the ground. I don't know whether it was a ditch or what. The next thing he remembered was being arrested by police. When Hannon was shown a picture of Olga, he said that he knew her to see her, but didn't know her personally. Hannon had been discharged from the army in 1941 and then re-enlisted in May 1943. He was absent without leave in June 1944 and apprehended three months later. His mother died while he was unreachable and he didn't learn about her death until some time after the funeral. At the time of Olga's murder, he'd just returned from Camp Borden, a Canadian Forces training base in Ontario, and he was on Army embarkation leave. Angelo Branca was appointed by the Attorney General to defend Hainan. Branca, who was later appointed as a judge of the BC Supreme Court, had defended 63 people on murder charges, and only one, Domenico Nasso, received the death penalty in 1928. Branca didn't want to make it too. Branca was facing a jury of 11 men and one woman. The eyewitness testimony, identifying Hainan as a soldier seen at the beach after the murder, was so strong that Branca decided a defence of unproven identity was hopeless. When he found out about the staggering amount of booze that Hainan had consumed on the day leading up to the murder, he advised him that his best chance would be to argue that he had so much to drink that he was incapable of forming the intent to kill. This way, he thought his client would get a verdict of manslaughter and escape the death penalty. Branca established that Hainan drank a 13-ounce bottle of rye at noon, 24 to 30 beers, and a drink of rum between 2 and 8 p.m., 15 beers between 9.30 and 11 p.m., and more than half a bottle of rye after that. Hainan came to court smartly dressed in a tweed sports jacket and brown trousers and looked nothing like the drunken soldier at the Good Eats Cafe. 33 witnesses were called, including Dr Creighton, who'd performed the autopsy. The doctor testified that Olga had been so badly beaten that her brain was exposed. Her eyes were blackened, her jaw broken, and all her teeth knocked out from repeated blows from the driftwood. The defence fell flat when the prosecutor convinced the jury that while he may have consumed a massive amount of alcohol, the fact that he beat Olga to death with repeated blows placed the body where it would be carried away by waves and tried to avert his face when approached by Hazel Robinson, all showed intent. 
Hainan explained that the bloodstains on his clothes were from the cuts on his hands. But in the end, Hainan's inability to explain how the charcoal got on his hands and in his hair swayed the jury. Prosecutor Whiteside made a dramatic closing statement when he asked the jury for a murder conviction and said, This was the sort of crime Jack the Ripper was guilty of. I do not think there is a doubt in anyone's mind that the accused committed the crime. The jury deliberated for under three hours before coming back with a verdict of guilty and a strong recommendation for mercy. The sources for this podcast included the official inquest into Olga's death, as well as Inspector Vance's files. I also had Angelo Branca's account of the trial from his 1981 biography, Gladiator of the Courts, but there are still a number of things that bother me. I was curious why the civilian who followed Olga into the cafe didn't play a large role in the trial, perhaps even casting reasonable doubt. I also found Branca's defence that his client was so drunk that he couldn't form intent a surprising strategy. So I asked former prosecutor and criminal defence lawyer Robert Debu to give me his thoughts on the case. I thought Angel Branca shouldn't feel so bad that he lost because I think it was a loser of a case. And the circumstantial evidence was pretty good. He's a soldier, but his cap has been left en route and he's making a steady progress going east towards where he was staying at the Astoria Hotel. Things are dropped along the way. Uh, That includes perhaps uh, the hat, but most importantly, the purse of the victim was found. And you can trace his route because the witness that saw him indicated to the police attending which direction he was going. And so they're heading that way. And somebody else had seen him in the area as well. He was definitely had the opportunity. He was around the scene, I say. Uh, and you um, have to think that Angela Branca couldn't have beaten the eyewitness testimony of the woman that said she'd seen him. Gave a pretty good description. I think they had enough evidence to establish he did it. Sand, the forensic stuff, wet trousers where it looked like he tried to pull her into the water and hope the tide took her out. One of the things that bothered me does say that he remembers getting in a fight. I mean, clearly he was there, but this civilian has always bothered me. He seemed to be the one that she was really afraid of and they couldn't find him or didn't look too hard. And it just, you know, it made me wonder whether he was in a fight. Like, how did she get to English Bay Beach? Yes, I I agree with you. I couldn't understand that. I mean, did he charmingly say, let's just have a walk and get to know each other better? And they walk down by the beach, okay? And they're mm-hmm. just talking. But she didn't seem uh, very interested in the first guy that she meets in the restaurant or tries to The one to that meet followed her. her. No, she was really bothered by that, but not by the yeah. soldier. Not by the soldier. So I-, I thought about that too. And I thought something happened there that we don't know about and may never know. You think there was enough evidence there to convict him, though? It's one thing to walk along the beach and even by crystal pool, whatever. It's another thing to get your trousers wet. (laughs) How about a wet charcoal piece of firewood that happens to wash up, which would explain dirty hands? Yeah, that's Um, rub, isn't it? So he was holding that at some point. Yeah. Mm. Again, you, you have to say, now, why would he? 
It makes sense, doesn't it? It does. And I, I'm fascinated by the drunken defence because I've seen it in other cases that Vance yeah. investigated where they did get off. One was a hit and run, and I, I just find that appalling. At one time, it was popular and successful. But you could see a sea change in legal journals, case law, where people were saying this isn't right that somebody can escape responsibility for his actions because he voluntarily induced a semi-comatose state, uh, acting like an automaton. That can still work as a defence. Branker didn't believe Hainan deserved the death penalty, and he fought the verdict all the way to the British Columbia Court of Appeal. But the defence that his client was so drunk he couldn't form intent held no sway with the appellant court either. William Hainan was executed at Ocala Prison Farm on October 20th, 1945, just as other soldiers were arriving home from the war. This week's episode has truly been a family affair. My oldest son, Mark, did the introduction, my daughter, Megan, took on Hazel Robertson's voice, and my youngest son, Matthew, was the voice behind convicted murderer, William Hainan. I was also really fortunate to have criminal lawyer Robert Deboo give me his time and thoughts on the case. You'll find the show notes on my website as well as my blog and information about all of my true crime books. This is Eve Lazarus and you've been listening to Blood, Sweat and Fear. <laughs>